What's up, everyone? Welcome to Dipped in Tone. I'm Rhett, and I'm flying solo today. We are without Zach. He is unfortunately feeling a little bit under the weather, which I was last week, so we've traded off. But we're going to soldier on. Today, we've got Oz Noy on the show, which is really cool. I've never had the chance to, uh, to talk to Oz before. We get into all things about his sound and his rig and how he developed the sound and, and using modulation and, and combining, you know, jazz and blues and funk and everything. And uh, it's a really cool conversation. And we're going to jump into it pretty quickly here because I'm not just going to sit and talk about myself without Zach. <laughs> So uh, before we get into it, a couple of quick plugs. First of all, thank you to our patrons. If you want to support the show, uh, check out the link in the description box down below to join our Patreon. Take a look at the different tiers. We give access to like uh, the patron only discord server. So you can listen to episodes live while we're recording them. You can submit your rig to be dipped. Uh, and if you like what we do here, that's a great way to support Dipped in Tone. And we also want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, which is Stumac. You go to stumac.com slash dipped in tone. You'll get 10% off of your order. Link is also in the description for that. And uh, it's cold here in Atlanta. We're going through a season uh, change. It's finally feeling like fall, which means the uh, humidity is dropping. In fact, in my room right now, it's like currently 20% humidity. So it's already super dry. So it's time to take care of specifically your acoustic guitars, keep them hydrated, uh, keep them in their cases. And you can find all that stuff that you need to take care of your guitars, acoustic, electric, everything. You know, your setup is probably going to change because of the season change. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we have to do going from summer to fall to winter. And you can find all of the tools necessary to take care of that guitar maintenance stuff at Stumac. So thanks again to Stumac for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, Stumac.com slash dipped in tone for 10% off of your order. This is a quick intro. So we're going to jump straight into the interview with Oz Noy. Oz, what's up, man? Thanks for uh, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. So Sorry that we're, we're unfortunately a man down this afternoon, you know, but that's how these things go. I was sick last week, so I guess now it's Zach's turn to be sick. But well, yeah. We're here. We're here anyways. So thanks for joining us, man. Sure. So I wanted to, I want to talk to you about your sound today because I think you have such a unique approach to your sound, especially coming from like the jazz fusion background that you come from. There's not very many players out there that use modulation like you do, use fuzz like you do, use things like ring modulation like you do. So I guess to start off with, can you kind of take us through, you know, you you grew up in Tel Aviv, right? Mm -hmm. And and you got into Aviv, yeah. yeah, and, and you got into playing there around like 15 and from what I understand it was a it was kind of a more traditional jazz background, right? Well, the way it started, I started playing at 10 and actually started with the Beatles, you know. <laughs> Oh yeah. So I was always playing rock and pop and jazz or pop and jazz. Like I always did both since I started really. Cause I don't know, I guess when you start learning guitar, the way to kind of learn more advanced stuff is to more through jazz, you know? So when I was 15, I was kind of semi-professional already, kind of professional actually, not semi. So I was, I would play with a lot of the, I started to do recording session. I would try to, and I would play with a lot of the pop artists there. Right. But in the same time, I was studying jazz. So I was doing a lot of jazz gigs. So my whole thing was just basically doing both 
pretty much till this day, really. But um, growing up was always both worlds at the same time. That's why probably I'm a little more aware of guitar sounds and tones because, you know, if you do studio work or you play pop or rock gigs, you have to be aware of that stuff. Where in jazz at the time, at least, I was growing up in the 80s, it started to be more popular for people to play with solid bodies, but it was still not really popular. Like jazz was like a hollow body guitar with that kind of dead sound. Right. You know? Right. So it's, what drew you to both simultaneously, the pop and the jazz stuff? I just did it. I, I loved both. I never had a, I remember as a kid, people would tell me, Oh, you got to decide it. I was like, no, I don't have to decide. I just <laughs> do whatever I like, you know, it's yeah. more work, I guess, in some ways, but um, I don't know. At the time, just, you know, I I was always playing pop and rock and stuff like that. So that was always kind of a thing that I like to do, especially in the 80s where all the shredders were around and that stuff was always fun. But the jazz thing was interesting because I wanted to improvise and play jazz. So when I discovered like Pep Metheny, like in the 80s, the Pep Metheny group still live talking that record or like, uh, Chick Corea's first electric band record, or Ellen Holtzward, I was like, wow, this is what I want to do. Or Schofield was doing Blue Matter, it's that era. era. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's what I wanted to do. But, and I tried, kind of, and I realized that there's no chance I can do it because in order to do that, you have to really study jazz, you know? Mm. So then I found some teachers that got me to play traditional jazz. So that's pretty much the story. I was playing heavy metal in one hand. The other hand, I had a hollow body guitar and I was playing bebop. You know? Did the two inform each other? Like, did you find yourself on on your heavy metal, your pop gigs at the time, thinking about your jazz harmony? No. Or I was able to somehow. I never. I was able to kind of separate it. I never played heavy metal, but I like the heavy metal guitar shred thing. You know. Yeah. So I would put that into pop gigs. Uh, you know, there's uh, YouTube videos of me playing with an Israeli artist when I have long hair and I'm tapping and stuff. <laughs> and I was like 20 or something or 18. So, uh, but the jazz thing was always kind of separated. I think it started to all connect right before I moved to New York because I started to do some uh, bar gigs where it started as a kind of a trio playing blues without a singer, so it was all instrumental. And then I got bored of that and I started to add some R&B tunes like Stevie Wonder and James Brown. And after a while, I was like, well, what would, have, what would happen if I just start playing all my jazz vocabulary on that stuff? Mm. So that's how things kind of started to come together as one thing. And then when I moved to New York, it took a minute. When once I got rid of my hollow body guitar in New York, because I realized that it ain't going to work great for me that, that that with that tone you know what i mean the, yeah so that when that happened then things start to kind of come together so in, in israel in the 80s and 90s what was the gear scene like like wh what kind of rig did you have was there uh, a, was it easy to access pedals and amps or was no. it kind of hard to come by well um it was very popular to use an ada or a triaxis boogie triaxis and everything in stereo it was that kind of period um, so that went on for a while. I never got my triaxis, boogie triaxis ever. I'm still <laughs> <laughs> dreaming of the day, you know. But I used ADA, you know, yeah. with speakers and sh stuff like doing the stereo thing. And then I got into Stevie Ray Vaughan and that changed everything. 
So okay. when that happened, I was like, okay, I need a twin reverb. So I had, I got it, like the best amp that I owned in Israel. I used to use, use Marshalls, but it was like 900. It was oh, right. cr- crappy ones, you know, with pedals. But then I um, then I got a twin reverb with you know the remember the ones that had the red knobs yeah you know? mm-hmm. so I had one with black knobs. What year would that have been? Like late eighty eight or okay. So that was like the first real decent amp that I owned, and that, that I used that for maybe two years. Then I moved to New York, but that's when I started to get a more of a blues tone, you know. Yeah, so was that the one that had the JBLs in it with the the chrome dust no, caps? I don't remember. I think it just had regular Fender Eminence or whatever they used at the time. Actually, believe it or not, I I shipped it to New York at some point, and my first solo album, the first solo album, had the, the the studio album. I used that amp. I used two twin reverbs. Wow. Yeah. So you got into Stevie in in the early '90s, I guess, or late '80s, and late 80s, so yeah. how did that affect your? Because you're known for playing Strats and Tellies yeah. mostly now, right? Yeah. So was was that a product of the Stevie Ray Vaughan? Stuff? I think so. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah. So you would have gotten a Strat and a Tube Screamer and a Fender and and just gone yeah. for Stevie. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what it does to everybody, really. Once you're yeah. on it. And yeah, also yeah, at the yeah. same time, you know, I was, I was listening to Eric Johnson and stuff like that. So Eric was another guy because those tones are so great, you know? Yeah. So uh, when you moved to New York in the 90s, what what was that like? Because obviously New York is kind of the epicenter, at least in North America, for the jazz yeah. scene. Yeah. So were, did you jump headfirst into the jazz stuff or were you just taking any gigs you could get your hands on? Well, I took everything I could took get my hands on. Um what was interesting is when I moved to New York, I was hoping for something that wasn't really there in the beginning. Like, you know, I I always loved jazz. So and, and the, you know, like, the let's say more not straight ahead, but more acoustic jazz. So when I came to New York, I went to a couple of clubs and I was like shell shocked from it. I was like, wow, this is this is really the best there is. You know what I mean? So I, 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 I was a little freaked out to even try, you know what I mean? Because I was playing jazz gigs, but when you go and see Brad Melda or Bill Stewart or those guys in front of you playing in a small club or, or Brian Blade or Cord Rosenwinkel, and at the time, it was mid-90s, they already had their shit completely together. Like they sounded yeah. like they sound today, you know what I mean? So when you see that, you're like, oh, okay, well, I got to step back. So that was one part of it, which was, that's why I stayed in New York all those years, because of that. But I grew up also on, you know, the Jaco thing and Stern and Hiram Bullock, so, and a lot of R&B and blues and stuff. And when I moved here, I didn't find that in the beginning, you know? I was like, well, I can't really find that stuff. So it took a while to find the pockets of the guys that played that kind of stuff. So that took a while, you know? So how how long did it take you to kind of muster up the courage, I guess, to start getting into the New York scene? If you came in and were super, which I understand, like going to see Rosenwinkel or Brad Meldow at your local. I mean, what were you going to like smalls and, and clubs like that? Yeah. You know, I think what I, used, I was doing more is I was going to the R&B and blues jams that at the time was go, they were happening. So I, you, you go and you sit in and, you know, you start to meet people. So I was immediately more drawn to the electric kind of stuff, you know? Um, 
the jazz scene, I never kind of got into it in that sense. Like I never got into the small scene, you know, mm. or, or that kind of stuff. Later in life, I got into the what, the 55 bar scene. I don't know yeah. if you know, because mm-hmm. that's where Stern played. That, that was a little more open kind of musically. And I've done a lot of stuff there. And that was kind of where I would more play my jazzier stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so getting back to the, the, the sound, you're, wh- where were you at at that time? Were, were you pretty? Because I see you're, you're now with, with three pedal boards and you're using, you know, two different rotaries and, and yeah. pretty impressive rig. Where where were you in the mid to late 90s? Was it always that sort of complex or did you kind no. of work your way up to it? No, what happened in the mid 90s where I was still in Israel, it was just a few pedals, really. Like, not a lot. Like, delay, overdrive, maybe a chorus of wah-wahs or stuff like that. I didn't really know much about it. The one thing that I really wasn't didn't know much about, like, I, I, I would get a decent tone, but I, I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of how important the amp is and the volume of the amp that you play with. I wasn't aware that there's a sweet spot to a Marshall or a Twin Reverb, you know what I mean? And if you're not in a sweet spot, it's just not going to sound right, so... Um, that's stuff that I was aware of later when I moved to New York. So when I moved to New York, I just had a few pedals, like literally, like I think I had an Ibanez digital delay, like with a modulation that I saw Satriani was using. There's a picture of the pedal on one of his uh, records. And like a Tube Screamer, a TS-808, not, actually TS-9, not even TS-808. And, you know, like things like that, like a delay. Then the Line 6 green pedal came out. That was a revelation. That changed everything for me. The the DL4? The, yeah, the, the DL4. Delay, yeah. So, once, so what happened was um, I, had a, I had a 70s deluxe reverb that was not great. Um, I had a, a reissue twin reverb that I was doing most of my gigs with that was okay like it had volume and clarity but you know so that was going on for a while and then once i started to do my trio which kind of happened i I never wanted to be a solo artist or do records i just wanted to play so i had Mm. this music because i was playing down in israel i thought yeah let me do that and get noticed in the scene so once i started to doing that i started to write and the whole thing with my pedal board evolved from my writing, meaning mm. like I would write certain tunes and I would, in course, you know, suddenly I would use a reverse delay and then I want the reverse delay to go to another delay. So then suddenly you need two DL4s and then you want to have a looper on the side also. So you use three DL4s, <laughs> which I use at certain points, you know, and then the whole thing with the Leslie and the tremolo, it all came from just playing live all the time and writing music, you know? So at some point I had a really, really big board because, you know, the tunes and the, what I was writing leading to my first studio album, you kind of, I kind of, it, it was kind of, the music was kind of asking for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I love your use of rotary. I feel like the Leslie sound from a guitar player's perspective is one of the most underrated things yeah you know it's it adds so much especially in a trio context where you kind of need to fill up a lot of the space exactly that's exactly what it was it was because i played a trio the the effects became kind of uh almost another instrument you know what i mean it adds another color it kind of gives it makes it more interesting 
And I used to do a lot of stuff for a minute with loops. Uh, now I still do stuff with loops, but I, I, there was a period when I used to, when I did the second studio album, Schizophrenic, I used to do, if you listen to Schizophrenic, there's all these like really fast lines. It's, it's stuff that I loop while I play and then I double time it and reverse it. So I used to do a lot of stuff in real time with loops. I still do. I just just changed. So a lot of those things happened while I was playing live. Things just started to kind of pop up. Like I, the, 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 the example that I always say was um, I do this thing where, where the tremolo is really, uh, it's a hard tremolo and it sounds like, like it's a rhythm part of a rhythm guitar. That happens as a mistake when I was in Japan, when I was doing my first tour, my feet hit the tremolo pedal and it went all the way up. And I remember playing a chord and going like, oh, what is this? But then I went with it and suddenly I realized that I'm playing rhythm and I edit in and out. It sounds like I'm doing, you know what I mean? So it's like little things like that, but it all happened through live playing. I was kind of lucky because I play live all the time, you know? Yeah. So your approach to, to sound is when in terms of writing, some I guess there there's sort of two approaches where you you have an idea of a sound in your head and you try and get it out of your amp or you stumble onto something and that inspires a part. Is are you are you kind of both in practice oh, or you do yeah. one or the other? Oh. To me the most important thing is just something that you always struggle with is just to get a really good basic tone. Mm. Everything else kinda come on top. If you don't get a really good basic tone, not, nothing else will really work, you know? So um, I learned over the years and I've changed a lot of different amps and stuff. But, you know, I started with twin reverbs in New York and then I, then I had bandmasters that were modified. Those were pretty good, actually. And then after that, I had a Marshall for a long time. And then when the Turok came into my life, that kind of made a big difference because it's, it, Turok doesn't sound like a Marshall, but it has that kind of punch, you know? So mm -hmm. you get like that kind of Fender clarity and like an exotic kind of sound, but with a lot of balls, you know? So that made a big difference. And you know, also all those amps started to react well, where before, you know, I was playing, I was like, why is the distortion so thin or this sound doesn't have sustain? I wasn't realizing that you have to play in certain volumes and use certain amps and certain kind of levels to get, it's like air that's moving. Like I'm talking, the air moves. It's the same thing with a guitar. So that's the main thing. And that's something that you, I still, you always struggle with that. Even if you have great amps, it's always like, you know, whatever room you're in and wherever you're standing, it always has to, you know, something has to give back. Otherwise it's really hard to play really. Yeah. What, what two rock are you using now? I use either a two, I use either a TS one or a classic reverb. Mm. Yeah, I, I just recently both. I, I just got a classic reverb, uh, the hundred watt recently. Yeah, and I it's, was, I, yeah, yeah, it it changed my life because of like there's this this just fidelity to it. There's it's like yeah. there's just more coming from yeah that circuit than yeah. most other amps I've played. Yeah, yeah, the two rocks are really something else, you know. The, again, there's I have old Fenders. If I do smaller gigs, I use an old Deluxe. I have a, a Princeton. I used to have a Super Reverb with, that I like, but I didn't find... You know, the thing about using amps for me is if you don't have the right gig to use the amp, then you end up not using it. And I, I had a really nice um, 
super reverb my house and it was sitting in my closet for two years and after two years i was like man i haven't touched this in two years i better not yeah so it's that kind of stuff i have a really beautiful old vox that i'm not using (laughs) (laughs) yet (laughs) and and i have marshalls i have a 50 watt plexi and a 100 watt plexi the 100 watt i record with at home all the time the 50 watt i used to play with it live but again it's the same thing it's you have to have the right gigs to use it on. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it just doesn't sound right, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you really have to be working those amps. Otherwise, yeah. It, yeah, they just kind of fall apart. You exactly, know? yeah. So a lot of the times I'll use uh, uh, Deluxe. Sometimes I use two Deluxes. That works great, too, you know? So it kind of depends on the gig and on the room, really, at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know? So you, you use a lot of things like octave fuzz and ring modulation and things that are kind of out there for a lot of guitar players. I'm a huge octave fuzz fan myself. Like one of my favorite things to do is, you know, turn the guitar down to get sort of a pseudo ring modulation kind of sound. What, how did you get to that? What drew you to that stuff originally? Well, I don't use ring modulation modulator. I use something on the line six that sounds like it. I think it's called the, frequency something oh yeah Mm -hmm. it kind of does the same thing you know i never had an actual ring modulation um if you use the octavia the right way it will sound like that a little bit um years ago a friend of mine brought like i brought like a full tone octafuzz and as soon as i played it i was like oh my god i went ran and bought one you know i didn't even have the money i just went like oh i gotta have this so i've been using that was in like probably the late 90s or something. So I've been using uh, o- Octavia and Octopus for a really long time. And there's so many, so much character, so many sounds that you can get out of those pedals just by turning the volume of the guitar up and down. Hmm. So um, I started to use it. And again, it was one of those things that it was very inspire- inspiring to me. And I use it on some of my tunes, you know, on a lot of tunes of mine. It's like a part of the kind of vocabulary at this point of what I do, you know. Mm. Um, but again, it just happened because I plugged into one. I played two chords and I ran on both one. I was like, oh, I got to have this, you know. <laughs> and actually, the the the, uh, the song, the, the first studio album that I made, it's called Ha. And, and uh the title track is called High, and that was I wrote that because of the Octafuzz. Because oh, wow. I bought the Octafuzz and I played with it at home and I came up with this riff. Sometimes, you know, sounds can get you to play things and to get you to get stuff that you wouldn't normally go for, you know? Yeah, so what what is your writing process like? Are you sitting at home and creating like fully fleshed out demos or are you just kind of putting an idea down and then getting in the studio with the rhythm section and... and- cutting it live well first of all i i haven't done a studio album in a long time with original music the last one i've done was right before the pandemic but my process up till then which was um for many years actually was i would first of all try to get a concept of what i want an album to sound or what kind of style or what kind of direction i want so for example I did Twisted Blues Volume 1 and 2. So those records were, I had in mind like all those blues forms, you know, like shuffles, mm-hmm. rumbas, all this so different. And then I would put my own twist on it, like more modern jazz harmony and stuff like that. And then I did an album that's called Who's Gives a Funk. So that was more like I was really thinking about like R&B, 
kind of vibe and funk vibe. So it kind of, I started listening to this music and that kind of inspires me. I did, the last two albums that I did were kind of Boogaloo inspired albums. So I listened to a lot of this kind of Boogaloo stuff. So that's the first thing. And then after that, I just, I always collect ideas. I have always, like if I have a guitar riff, a chord, a thing, I always record it. And then every once in a while, I listen to it. And once I listen to it, if it kind of grabs my attention, usually what I would do is I would, you know, I have Pro Tools here, so I would put it on Pro Tools. Normally, I would program a drum beat and a bass line. And then if that works for me, if they grooves so or if it's got something, then I start developing it. Mm. And actually, all the tunes that, I would say that 90% of the tunes that I wrote, um, I basically write the bass lines and the idea of the drums at home. And then Got the it. drummers and bass players that come in, they make it their own and make it better. But the idea and the concept always comes from me and it comes from just, I'm doing very, very basic Pro Tools demos, like super basic. Yeah. And yeah. then what, what we would do is we would go and do very short rehearsals. Like I'm talking about, I'll come with a tune, we go for half an hour in the room and go like, this is a tune. And then we play it live for months, mm. like for many months sometimes before I go in the studio. So then it gets developed and gets organic. And then once I have it together, then we go and record the album. That's most of the albums I've done were done like that. There's a few situations where I used um, um, uh, like uh, guys from L.A. or something like, like Vinnie Caliuta, Weckl or even Dennis Chambers that we all we did play live, but we didn't let's say play live as much as I would want it to be. But it was enough to go in the studio and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably saves you on some studio time too if you've spent all that time shedding the tunes on gigs. Yeah, I don't believe in this kind of music. I don't believe in bringing a chart to somebody in the studio and playing it. I, I just don't believe in it. Even in the studio when we go in and with all those guys that I play with that done gazillion records, it always takes a couple of takes even after you know the tune to get it right, you know? Mm. Do you find yourself like as you're writing, do you have certain rhythm sections in mind for a specific tune? Yes, absolutely. It's not, it's kind of more like, I think a lot about who's going to drum on it, you know, cause drummers are the ones that really bring the sound of the band, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, what are you looking for out of a great, cause uh, the, you just worked with Dennis Chambers recently. So, you know, working with Dennis Chambers, Dave Weckl, or, or Vinnie Caliuta, like what, what are you looking for specifically with somebody like Dennis Chambers over Vinnie Caliuta? Or is it just, I know their sound and I know what they do well, and I'm going to pick something that fits their vibe? Any of those guys, they all sound different, you know? So, and so it's basically knowing, it's not only them, it's every drummer that I play with, I kind of, I kind of know what they sound like and I know, uh, I have an idea of where I think they're going to, which tunes or what kind of vibes they're going to be really good at. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so, and, and you know, I toured with Wackel for many years and I toured with Dennis now for a couple of years. So when you play with somebody a lot, you kind of really get to know what they do, you know? Yeah. So when you go into the studio to record this stuff, are you just bringing in your live rig and using your standard yes. amps and pedal boards? You're not using stuff from the studio or anything? No, no. So it's really just to go in and record. You've done all the work ahead of time. Like all the creative and production work is done. Yes. And you're just going in yes. just to put it on tape, basically. Yeah, 
Yeah. The only thing that I, the only thing I've done in, in some of my last albums was I sent a direct signal out without my, no, I send an, uh, from my, I have, usually I use two pedal boards, at least I used to, one had more like the overdrives and modulation, the other one is more delays and stuff and reverbs and stuff. So I would send a direct signal for an amp without the effects, just mm. in case something records too wet, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I haven't actually had a problem. All the records I've done so far, the effects were right on. I'm not sure if I recorded with reverb or not. I think most of my recordings are recorded without reverb, but definitely yeah. delays. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because you can always go back and, and add that in later. So getting back reverb to Reverb actually sometimes make a mess when you record with reverb. Yeah. Especially with, I don't play with a lot of gain, but I play loud. So, you know, the amp kind of pushes. And sometimes if you have reverb, it can make a mess. Yeah. So you're, you're using live amps primarily. Have you experimented or used any kind of digital modeling at all? Or are you just kind of, that's not your thing? Well, at home, I have a setup where I have a couple of heads here. I have a, the TS1 Turok head. I have a 100-watt Plexi, and I have a twin reverb, an old twin reverb head, actually, believe it or not, like a blackface. Um, so I have it set up where it, go, it, can go to, it goes to speakers, but it also goes to the aux, the universal audio aux. So, you know, it's, it sounds... Again, I think the speaker sounds a little better, hmm. but the aux, certain sounds on the aux are great. So, you know, I, that's as much as I've done in terms of uh, direct recording. Anything else? I haven't found anything yet that works. I know there's some stuff. I tried, yeah, I don't know. I'm messing around with the quad cortex, but not enough to get it to a point where I'm using it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, if you're used to having the speakers or the cabinet in the room with you or on the stage with you, going to some kind of modeler is yeah kind of tough. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 So when did that transition happen for you, that realization of like understanding that the amp needs to be moving some air to really start to sound good? Was that a specific moment or was it just when you kind of got to New York and started figuring it out? You know, what happened is... um I I got really lucky in New York because when I started, when I moved here, it was in the mid-90s. There was still a lot of gigs here, a lot more than what there is now and clubs and stuff. But there was a club, there is a club that's still around and that I still play at. It's called The Bitter End. And I started to play there regularly. In the beginning, it was like once a month and then it turned into be every Monday for 17 years, actually. So... That the thing that was great about this club, and it's one of the only ones in New York, if not the only one, is it's big enough that you can actually bring a Marshall or a big amp and open it up and play pretty loud, you know? Yeah. So because I had this situation in this room, I was able to kind of play with uh, amps and kind of see how they really react, you know, like where if you play a small room, and you can't open the amp, it doesn't really matter. You will never figure out what works and what not. With this, with this room, so I was able to bring a Marshall, a Turok, a Twin, a Deluxe, all that stuff. And as I was developing my band and making records, I would, I guess, <laughs> play louder and louder. But 
I was also realizing, okay, this amps work best on these volumes and that kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the thing is, again, you have to have the right room to do it in because if you play in a small room, you can open a 100-watt amp, then you can't do that. You can't get that. So it happened. It happens in New York probably after I've done... When I started to do my trio regularly, it was like in the early 2000s sometimes. Yeah. I started to realize, okay, if I play this amp and this volume, then I have sustain and all the frequencies open up and all that kind of stuff, you know? So what do you do when you're on the road and you run into a situation uh, where you're, you're way too loud for your room? How do, you, how do you get around that? Well, the problem to being on the road is a lot of the times I have to play rental amps. Uh, so that's, that's where it starts. So I've been through all through this whole trip of, you know, which amp is the best to rent. And believe it or not, I landed on my conclusion was that getting two Fender Deluxe Reverbs, Black Faces, reissues are the best solution for me. Interesting. And there, yeah, and I've tried, I tried like Twin Reverbs are hell. Uh, I used Voxes for a while. Those are... The problem with all this stuff is, first of all, you don't know what you're getting, and some amps are really inconsistent, and at least the Deluxe Reverb is a new one. They're very consistent, so you can kind of get the same sound out of them, mostly. And also, they're not too loud. So basically, what happens now is if I play a room that I only need to use one Deluxe, then I can still open it up on four and five, and it will react. But if it's a bigger room, then I'll add the second Deluxe, and then you get more volume and tone. So I found that I found that that was that's the best solution for me these days for touring. So you're not using like a stereo rig or whatever. It's just one, and then if you need more air, you just fire up the second one. Yep, I don't use anything in stereo now. I have a setup where I do a little stereo, but not when I tour. So, got it. Yeah, it's it's challenging. You know, I just finished this U.S. tour. We've done a bunch of shows, and some of them were rental. A lot of them were rental amps with the two deluxes. You know what? The stuff sounds good, but then whenever I can use my two rocks, I use it. I remember Dennis would go like, oh, my God, what a difference. And I was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of depressing. You go like, oh, my God. What it matters, man. It all matters. Oh, you know? oh my God. I mean, do you find yourself like struggling through a specific on, on a night where maybe the amps aren't doing what you want it to do and – yeah, How do you handle that? You just handle it. You got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, get, it gets frustrating sometimes. Like sometimes you can kind of get dark on it a little bit. But I think this is the this is this tour. The last two tours I've done, or three tours I've done, was the first ones that I actually was asking for the two deluxes and. Even if the deluxe tones wasn't really like beautiful or exotic or really what you want, at least it reacts good. You know what I mean? Because I using like reissue twins, they, they to me they sound completely dead. You can't even play on them. For me, they don't move any air. So to me, it's more important to just that at least the amp will react. If the tone is not as beautiful as could be, I still get at least a reaction from the amp. You know? Yeah. That's more important or, to me. Yeah, exactly. That's more important to me than the color, you know, at right. this point. Interesting. Because, yeah, yeah. You're, you're getting most of your color from your pedal board, right? Exactly, yeah. Got it. Got yeah. It. Man, 
That's uh, so I want to talk about your your sort of combination of or your approach to playing. You know, blending the jazz and the blues and the funk influence. You know, you mentioned Stevie Ray Vaughan earlier. What were some other influences for you earlier on that that helped you kind of bridge the two worlds together? You know, it's kind of the usual guys like Pat Martini, John Schofield, Stern, Alan Holdsworth. But then there's all these traditional guys like Wes Montgomery, Jim Hall, Kenny Burrell, um, you know, and more modern guys like Rosenwinkel, Kurt Rosenwinkel, people like that. But And then the other side of it is the rock guys or the blues guys. So, of course, you know, Jeff Beck, Eric Johnson, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, Scott Henderson, I would put kind of in the middle of it. Um I don't know how it all connected. I just always loved both, you know what I mean? And I listened to both. I do, I I would say that um, I like the, the, the blues rock sound on guitar better than the jazz sound. Mm. So I like a really beautiful Fender tone from Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan more than I like, I don't know, a Jim Hall tone out of a hollow box, hollow yeah. body guitar, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the fact that I like those tones immediately kind of brings you to, you know, kind of mix it together anyhow. So what, what modern players are there out there today that are really piquing your interest? Who are you listening to? You mentioned Rosenwinkel, but who else? There's plenty of guys. It's kind of endless now. I don't know. Kreisberg, Mike, Jonathan Kreisberg, Mike Moreno, uh, I don't know, Gilad Hexelman, Near Felder, there's like so many of them. I'm like, it's probably 20 more that I don't even remember now. <laughs> Those are more like the modern jazz guys, you know? Yeah. Um, I found, I don't know, some people will hate me for saying this, but I found that except of Joe Bonamassa and, uh, and uh, Derek Trucks, um, I found, again, there's a few more. I'm not saying there's no others, but I found that the blues rock scene kind of stayed it didn't really develop since the really the 70s or 60s like you know steve ray vaughn came and made a big impact but since then a lot of the people that play to me they sound like versions of body guy or steve ray vaughn there's like nobody really that took it to the next level or invented something new except maybe eric johnson at the time that took all of that you know yeah there is the the modern rock guys I really love, like Tosin Abasi and all those like modern rock guys. They're really and uh, Hanson, what's his name? The uh, 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 Tim Hinton. Tim, yeah, like those guys to me, and um, um, those guys to me are really taking the guitar to the next level. So I like that stuff, and of course the some of the um, Matteo Sassato is great, mm-hmm. and uh, the Italian guy that plays with the. Uh, Matteo Mancuso. Yeah, Matteo. Yeah, those are great. You know, so they're really pushing the envelope pretty yeah, far. I, I agree. I, I love what, you know, guys like Tosin are doing. They're, it seems to really just to be pushing the instrument forward to a new place. Yeah. I, I would add, you know, like Marcus King and, and Gary Clark Jr. into the guys like Bonamassa who are, you know, especially Marcus. I don't know if you've seen him play at all, but yeah, he's, yeah, he's great. He's amazing. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's plenty of guys. There's so, so much good stuff now. It's kind of, you know, hard to digest. <laughs> so what advice would you give some of the younger players out there that are listening who 
who might want to kind of follow in your footsteps sonically, kind of blending the jazz and the blues and R&B and funk and rock worlds together? I think today is not a problem anymore at all, because I think today most of what I hear, at least from the jazz scene that comes out of New York, it's already a huge blend of things, you know? Like even even think about just Robert Glasper, like mixing all, you know, jazz and, and, um, and uh, you know, like uh, R&B and all that kind of stuff and hip hop and stuff. So I think now the, the, the world, world is completely open to anything, which is a great thing. Um, I think the only thing I do think is that whatever you do, if you end up blending stuff or you end up playing traditional whatever, I think the the most important is to have your roots like like strong um, roots, meaning like you really want to know the blues and you really want to know some jazz, which is bebop, because if you don't have those together, um, it's not going to sound as strong, to my opinion, you know. So like the the you know the 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 roots and the innovators are still the same, like BB King, Freddie King, Albert King. Body Guy, Hendrix, you know, that stuff needs to be in your playing. The same way as if you want to play modern jazz, you can't really do it unless you know the language of Charlie Parker, Wes Montgomery, and all those that kind of stuff, you know, Tonya Smunk, Bud Powell, you know. Kind of have to know where you're, where you come from to know where you're going, kind of thing. Yeah, kind of. Although I was very strict about it for many years, and now I kind of see it probably because of YouTube. I see guys that do it. And I don't know if they went that same way, you know, like that's it, took the same road. So I don't know. That's what I know, you know. That's solid advice, you know. Yeah. I think I think a lot of people share that sentiment. Like you kind of have to study, study the masters, and and yes. you know, would you would you say that that's kind of how you develop your sound, your own sound, is by studying 100%. them and not being yes. able to sound like them? Yes, a hundred percent. And another, and I, and the most important advice that I will give anybody that plays today is you gotta go out of your house and play live. Because the whole thing with having a camera in front of your face and doing the one minute Instagram thing, it's very impressive. It's very cool. Some of the stuff is unbelievable, actually. But in a way, it's not reality. Like, because in order to be a working musician, you have to. You have to be able to hang in a musical environment socially and musically. You know what I mean? Mm. And none mm. of that happens when you sit at home. Yeah. You know, I, I can attest to that as someone who sits in front of a camera and plays guitar a lot and still plays with bands and people. It yeah. is a completely different thing playing by yourself to a camera versus playing with a band. Yes, yes. So that, that's, that's, I would say that's the, if there's one thing I would say that is important is that at this point, you know? Yeah. I mean, would you say if, if a player wants to get serious about jazz, is it New York still the place? Would you tell them to pack up and head to New York or no? I definitely think that it will, it would be worth it to be here for, for a period to just experience it firsthand you know what i mean like to because there's so many great players like pretty much everywhere you go it's really high level you know what i mean so and you can see some of the greatest jazz players just kind of in front of you in a little room you know so i would say yes you don't have to live in new york but between that and maybe go to some of the jazz schools you know like 
either Berkeley or NYU or New School, all that stuff, because you got access to really, really good players, you know, that can really show you how it's done, you know? That's interesting you say that instead of um, teachers, because it's, you know, especially going to jazz school, you you have access to to great teachers. But if you can see people actually out there doing it in the real world, that's probably a better. You know, I never went to university or anything like that. I kind of studied with a few private teachers and then I everything else I kind of grabbed by myself just from being in the streets of New York, really. But. I would say it's great to have a really, really good teacher. It's amazing. I wish I had some monster guitar player that was my teacher growing up. But but I think it's really important to be around the environment of like to see how it's done live. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and when you're in school, the one thing that's good being in a university is you meet a lot of players and you can play together, you know? And you meet a lot of teachers that are the guys that do it so you know there's benefits to that that i think are you know pretty significant awesome well oz thanks so much for for joining us today man really appreciate you you, uh taking the time sure well that was interesting if you haven't checked out any of oz noise records you absolutely should we'll link to a few in the description and in the show notes i love the way he uses modulation and his approach to a lot of these effects is pretty unique, especially in his space. So uh, yeah, huge thanks Oz for spending the afternoon with us here on Dipped in Tone. I do have a shill today. And actually it's something that Zach is loaning me. This is not mine, this is his. And he bought it and paid for it full price, I believe. But it is the Westerland preamp overdrive pedal. I forget the actual name of this, the one I believe it is, or it's like the, I don't know. But this thing is is kind of hot right now. They had a whole thing of, uh, you know, I think partnering with Vince Gill or they gave Vince Gill the first one, something like that. But essentially, this is a kind of all-in-one preamp overdrive tone shaping box. And uh, last time I was up at Mythos HQ, I saw it and was like, man, is this worth the hype? Because there's a lot of people talking about him. At least there was a few months ago uh, when I saw it. So Zach said, man, take it home, play with it for a little bit. I've been using it um, and I like it. It's really useful. If you're the type of player that is spending a lot of time between different styles of amps, you know, like Oz was saying, if you're backlining a lot of stuff, you're playing fenders, Voxes, Marshalls, you kind of don't know what you're going to get. Something like this is cool because it'll fit in front of just about whatever you're using guitar and amp wise. It's got silicon or germanium clipping. It's got hard or soft clipping modes um, and it's got a built-in boost as well. So they're not cheap, but they're well-made. It sounds good and it's really versatile. So yeah, this should have been Zach's shill, but I've currently got it. Thanks to the patrons for supporting us. If you want to join our Patreon, link is in the description box down below. Don't forget, there you can get access to things like our patron-only Discord server, as well as access to live tapings of the shows whenever we're recording them. Uh, link is in the description. If you like what you do, what we do here, you can support the show that way. And I want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, which is Stumac. Stumac.com slash dipped in tone will get you 10% off of your order. And uh, like I said, Seasons are changing. 
that time of the year to start taking care of your guitars. They probably need to set up. They probably need to stay humidified. And any and everything you need for that purpose is available at Stumac. So, uh, yeah, hopefully the next episode will be back to normal, both Zach and I in good health and good spirits. And uh, thanks for watching. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a like and a comment down below. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate us and review us. It helps new people find the show. So thanks, everyone. We'll catch you on the next one.